Hey, GOC. It's good to see you all. Thank you to everyone involved in announcements tonight. It was totally weird. Uh, Nathan, I'm worried about you going to be with the Lord on Sunday morning. So everybody just keep an eye on Nathan. That'd be important. Uh, Ethan, you didn't do a bad job. I'm not sure why you got replaced mid-sentence. You were doing great. The chef's kiss was beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. So anyway, good stuff. Uh, Good to see everybody. Will you open your Bible to Genesis 15? Genesis 15. It really is not an exaggeration to say it's one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. And the reason I say that is that it is uh, specifically verse 6. And we're going to look at Genesis 15, 1 through 6. Verse 6 is a verse that is expanded upon in the New Testament, not in one place, but for an entire chapter in the epistle to the Romans, and then in the epistle to the Galatians, and then in the letter by James. It's, it's a verse that's central to the Bible and central to our faith. And this little story that we look at tonight from the life of Abraham, our series on Abraham's faith is marching along. And in chapter 15, there's a moment that is so resonant, so familiar to us, if you've ever struggled to believe God's promises. And I think tonight you'll find a friend in Abraham. And more than that, a friend in the father of Abraham's faith, God himself. So let me read to you Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. It says, after these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. And then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him saying, this man will not be your heir but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is the very word of the living God. The president was dead and that had never happened before. The president had died. George Washington was long gone by the time that William Henry Harrison, the ninth president, died. But 
No president had ever died in office before. And while that was shocking, what was perhaps more controversial is that he had only been president for 30 days. March 4th to April 4th, it was during his speech, accepting the presidency, his inaugural speech, that's what they call it, inaugural speech, it was when he contracted a, some kind of bad cold being out there in the elements, and later he would get pneumonia and die. And the uh, ninth president of the United States is sometimes not even counted because he was there so briefly. And though that's sad, the interesting story, I think, is the story of John Tyler, uh, the accidentalist, they called him, the 10th president of the United States. He was never voted on. He was a vice president. And he actually existed before the 25th Amendment. Just geek out on American history for a second. It wasn't totally clear how this was supposed to work. This hadn't happened before. The presidential succession is the 25th Amendment. It hadn't been written yet. Uh, they'd take care of that shortly. But in the meantime, there was this little clause in the Constitution that seemed to say, well, I guess the vice president should be in charge. They weren't exactly sure what that meant, if he would assume the presidency. Remember, they were trying to avoid the whole king thing they'd been under for a while. So anyway, the, the news was carried by two significant men uh, to the farmhouse that John Tyler was living in. He didn't want to uh, be hovering uh, during the president's prolonged sickness. And so he went back home to Williamsburg, Virginia. And it was in the middle of the night when they came and knocked on his door and told him uh, by way of delivered letter that the bad news had come. The president was dead and John Tyler was to assume the presidency. There was a problem though. Uh, John Tyler had not yet been paid. Uh, he had a whole bunch of kids and he wasn't well off. Uh, his family money wasn't accessible at this time. And he didn't have money to make the trip to go be the president of the United States. He needed to take a horse, he needed to take a train, and he needed to take a steamboat. Kind of every kind of trip was required, and he had to borrow some money to be the president, to go to Washington. You see, he was the president, but he, he didn't have everything that he needed to be there. It was an interesting predicament to be in for the 10th president of the United States. I think that that's what this story is like. You see, there's a promise given by God to Abram, a promise that was given way back in Genesis chapter 12, a promise that came on the the news of Sarah's barrenness. They didn't have a child. And in God's promise to Abram, a promise to be his God and to bless him as a people, God said that Abram would have a son and that he would have a land and that he would become a great people and, and that that people would be a blessing to the whole earth. And so in this promise that whoever curses Abram will be cursed and whoever blesses Abram will be blessed. There was this promise that was very, very close to Abraham's heart and to his wife's heart. And that was the promise of a child. And it wasn't that they wanted a, a child, at least in Abraham's accounting, 
uh, because he was baby crazy or because Abraham Jr. would have been really cute or, you know, he just longed for uh, a boy. It was that God had made this promise some time ago. I mean, a lot's happened since Genesis 12, not just in this quarter for you guys, but in Abraham's life. Remember, he left his people, this moon worshiper from Ur, who used to climb to the top of a ziggurat and worship the goddess Naam and watch the stars and watch the celestial bodies move. And like his ancestors, worship and pray and sacrifice to those celestial beings. That was where Abram came from until one day God revealed himself to Abram and said, go to a place that I will tell you. And without a lot of information, but with revelation from the the true God, Abram went. He obeyed by faith, not knowing where he was going, but following God's promise. And he had some, some zeniths in his faith and some troughs. He had some successes and some failures. His initial followership was impressive because he's leaving behind his people, his ancestors, his gods, and he's now going towards this promise, this unseen promise that this unknown God who's revealed himself to Abram has given to him. And and he follows him wholeheartedly all the way to Canaan. And things seem to be going swimmingly well, except that the land isn't his and he doesn't have a son and there hasn't been this great amount of descendants. There hasn't been any descendants and he's seen some cursing and blessing, but it's been spotty at best. And and then uh, there's a famine in the land. And so Abram decides to bolt out of Canaan, the land of promise and go to Egypt. And we talked about that in chapter 13, things go bad for Abram there because he doubts God. And, and he has this great trial in his faith and he decides to lie and pretend that his wife is his sister to try to protect her in this human scheming way. And it doesn't go well for Abram. It doesn't go well for Sarah. And it certainly doesn't go well for the Egyptians because God sends a plague on them. And Abram leaves all throughout. God is blessing Abram in different ways. His possessions have increased and I mean, exponentially, he's now a very wealthy, uh, wandering nomadic person. His, even his nephew has become very successful as far as possessions go. And, and then we see Abram's faith again in this manifestation where his confidence in God's promise is so high in chapter 14 that he looks at his nephew Lot and says, take whatever land you want. I know that God will keep his promise to me. And so we see Abram's faith again at a high point. But when we come to Genesis 15, we're finding a point where there is a promise. There is something out there, but it's still not realized yet. And he doesn't have the means and he doesn't have the he doesn't have the object of that promise. He's got the word of God, but he doesn't have the fulfillment of that promise yet. And you see, that's where faith for us exists. We live in that tension between that divine promise, between God's word and reality and realization. Think about how much we believe that we have not yet seen. Think of all the promises that we cling on to that we wait to see fulfilled. You see, we're in Abraham's boat. We're in Abraham's shoes. We wrestle with 
the promise of God and with the reality of patience. A long time has passed, years in fact, and thousands of miles, and Abram still doesn't have a son. He still doesn't have descendants. And it's not just a cute baby he's after. God has promised him that through Abram, God will bless and save and deliver this whole world. All the nations will be blessed by God. And Abram just got out of a bloody war, rescuing his nephew from all these marauding uh, nations and kings. And he starts to wonder, where is this blessing? Where's the peace and stability that would come from a God who has honored his promise and fulfilled his promise? And so here he is in the tension between a promise and reality. And that's where faith lives. And that's where we're at tonight. And that's where Abraham's at. And so I think in these six brief verses, we learn something about how to live by faith. And I think it's something instructive for all of us. So look again at at chapter 15, verses one through three. We'll look at this in three parts. Uh, The first is, Let's look at his struggle with the promise, his struggle with the promise, verses one through three. It says, after these things, remember these things are the summary I just gave you. And more immediately, it's Abram's encounter with these kings. It was this massive war, kings against kings. Abram gets caught up in it because of Lot's decision to live right next to Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram and his mighty men win their little battle, but it was costly And in the end, he had to make a choice. Is he going to be allied with a fellow worshiper of God, a mysterious and shadowy figure that we met at the end of chapter 14 called Melchizedek? Or is he going to take this offering of peace and prosperity from this other king, uh, the king of Sodom? And Abram knows that he's on God's side. And so he rejects Sodom's offer of peace. And, and maybe, maybe that's why Abram is feeling a little shaky in chapter 15. He was just offered a peace treaty with a very powerful king. He was just offered tribute from war, but he rejected it. But I don't think that's why Abram's faith is faltering at this moment. Abram is not hard up. He's not like John Tyler who can't afford a, a plane, a t- train ticket. Definitely can't afford a plane ticket because they weren't invented. But He's, he's, he's well off. He's got plenty of camels and trained men and servants and, and gold and silver. He, he's very wealthy. So what is it that's making Abram be afraid? Because God doesn't say, do not fear to someone if they're not afraid. It has to be the struggle with the promise. The promise that God made in chapter 12 is yet to be fulfilled. And now Abram is wondering as he's getting older and older and his wife is getting older and older is how is this going to be fulfilled? The promise isn't tangible to him. It doesn't feel real to him. The gap between promise and reality is too palpable and he needs answers here. And what's so What's so comforting in these opening verses to me is that God meets him in his need before he has to say a word. You see that? Abram doesn't ask any questions. Abram doesn't initially cry out to God. This is a conversation that is initiated by God himself. That's awesome. 
That's beautiful because God knows you so well that he didn't need Abram to come to him in this moment. Instead, he meets with him. And I think that's reflective of how, how well God knows us. And he knows our weaknesses. To know that God understands our frailties, our weaknesses, our shortcomings, should give us as those people who try to hold on to God's promises, it should give us great hope to know that God cares about us, to know that he's compassionate towards us, that he meets us in our need, and he knows that we have a tendency to be afraid, to doubt, that our faith isn't always firm, but sometimes faltering and shaky, sometimes wobbly and insecure, and God has a word for us when we are not perfect. God has a word for us when we're wobbly. And so he comes to Abram in a vision. One of the ways God showed himself in the Old Testament, one of the most direct ways, sometimes through dreams, God would speak. But in the Old Testament, when God had something of great significance to say, he often chose the vehicle of a vision. And I don't know exactly what that looked like. It doesn't say it just says that the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And so we'll leave it at that. And he speaks to him really three lines. The first is do not fear Abram. You only say that to someone who's afraid. You only reassure someone that you don't need to be scared unless they're scared. I saw someone taking his kids trick-or-treating last night. I remain unnamed in case you're feeling judgy. And, and my littlest, oh, it's me. Uh, my littlest one was, there, you know, some people do, do Halloween wrong. Most people. Too much villains, which is... You know, I, I cancel it in Jesus' name and we go to the next house. So I used to be a charismatic. I can handle it. So, you know, we, we're skipping some houses and I'm just telling little Ollie Joe, like, Ollie Joe, don't be afraid. This is goofy stuff. And, and there's some that are more pumpkin oriented. We like those houses. Um, but if you're giving out king size candy bars or like full size candy bars, I will endure all kinds of zombie devil stuff. I'll, I'll cancel all that in Jesus' name and, and we'll push through it. But you don't have to tell someone to not be afraid unless they're afraid. And so God, Yahweh says to Abram, do not fear Abram. And then he reminds him, I am a shield to you. Is, is this partially Abram thinking about the tumultuous world he lives in? I mean, there was just seven kings at war and he got caught up in the middle of it. How is God going to keep his promise? How is Abram going to keep his head? How is servants going to stay alive here? How is this not going to be every weekend we're going to rescue Lot? Well, God gives him this word of protection that God is his shield And that's an image that's so scripturally sound. It comes out in the Psalms all the time. Thou, Lord, are a shield. Thou, Lord, are a shield about me. Uh, That kind of language reminds the faithful one that you are never outside of God's protective care. You're never in a place of, of danger when you belong to God, no matter how harrowing, how frightening, how susceptible you feel. God is near to you. And God speaks that word to Abram. And then he reassures him by once again giving him a promise that he's already given to him. Your reward shall be very great. This is not different language than in chapter 12 when he says, I will make your name great, verse 2, and you will be a blessing and I'll bless those who 
who bless you and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The promise of blessing or reward has already been put in front of Abram, but God is so good. God is so patient. God is so sympathetic to our weaknesses and frailties and to our struggle and to our wrestling with our so often meager faith that God has no problem repeating his promise to his servant. One of the wonderful things about having the scriptures is that we can go not once, not twice, but again and again to the word of God and be reminded of the promises of God. And so we go back to it, don't we? And we remind our hearts because they're forgetful, because they're wobbly, because they're weak. We remind our hearts, this is what God says. And you may have to go back there tomorrow and tell your heart again. And God gets that. And so he's happy to double down. He's happy to reaffirm his promise to you. He's happy to have you hear it again and again. How often in the New Testament does the Apostle Paul say, as a reminder to you? God knows that we are fearful, that we're forgetful. And so his promises are very repeatable, aren't they? They're repeatable. So as the servant struggles with a promise, he's, he's met before he even articulates his struggle with a reaffirmation of God's word. And then in verse two, Abram now speaks and he says, Oh Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house or the inheritor of my, my house is Eleazar, the one from Damascus. And then he explains, probably unnecessarily to God, how inheritance works in the ancient Near East. Since he doesn't have any kids, there is a, a person who is born in, under his roof, this Eleazar character, likely one of his servants or part of uh, Lot's family. We don't know exactly who this character is, but he is the first in line for all that Abraham has. And so as Abraham feels the aches and pains of an 80-year-old or however he is old at this time in the story, uh, he is aware of his frailty. He's aware of his, uh, of his demise. And so he reminds God, that he still doesn't have that child. And again, I don't think it's that he saw an ad for diapers and, and was like, oh man, I really want a junior. I don't think it was that. He, he just, you know, he was baby crazy or he wanted to see those chubby cheeks. I think that Abram understood that this child represented something greater than himself. Certainly there's some part of his heart that, that a father's heart that loves his son, but Abram had something in his mind far greater than that, didn't he? This was not a promise of of one child. This is a promise of uh, descendants that would be a blessing to the world. This was the inaction. This was the fulfillment. This was the provocation of God's great promise to bless the entire world, to take things as they were, the order of things, a world full of sin and chaos and war, and to turn it upside down and to make it a place that was like God, a place of righteousness 
righteousness. This was the nature of the promise, the blessing to all the earth. This wasn't for Abram just, I get a baby and a lot of dough. This wasn't a game show to him. This wasn't a a short-term plan. Abram knew that he would not live forever, but he knew more that the promise that God gave him would be enacted in his lifetime and then fulfilled in a more extraordinary way in days to come. And that's what he was grasping for. He was a man of faith, a man who was following Yahweh, who believed Yahweh imperfectly and at times struggled with that belief. But what he's begging God for in this moment is not just selfish uh, fulfillment of this promise. Abram wants to see God's way fulfilled. Abram wants to see God's promise throughout the face of the earth. Abram wants to see how what God has been doing since he created this world is moving towards the fulfillment of this promise at this time for God to finally bring forth his righteous reign on all the nations. Do you see that what Abraham was anticipating wasn't just a fat baby and a place to homestead. What Abram was anticipating is what every single believer from the time of the garden to the time of the eschaton has been waiting for. We want God to rule and reign. We want him to set everything right. We want to see this world be the place that God intended it to be. That's how big Abram's faith was. That was the, the, the dimensions of the promise of God. And that's what Abram was arguing for. It's what he was struggling with. And so he presents the problem to God and says, my heir is Eleazar, the Damascus fellow. And he repeats himself in verse 3, since you've given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. He struggles with a promise. I love this for the same reason I love reading through the laments of Job as we're doing in, in Crossroads on Sunday. Job tells it like it is, and Abram does too. Calvin comments on this verse, and actually on a different verse a little bit later, and he says this, it, it fits here well. He says, the Lord sometimes concedes to his children that they may freely express any objection which comes into their mind. Did you catch that? The Lord sometimes concedes to his children that they can freely express any objection that comes into their mind. He continues, for he does not act. (laughs) He does not act so strictly with them as not to suffer himself to be questioned. He does not act so strictly with them as to not suffer himself to be questioned. God initiated this conversation with Abram. Abram didn't ask for an audience with God. And now that he has an audience with God, now that his Bible is open, now that he's heard the word of God, It just turns out that God can handle Abram's questions. Does that help you to know that God can handle your questions? Does that help you to know that that God doesn't expect you to come to him perfect? That God doesn't expect you to come to him with the exact right language? That God doesn't expect for you to come to him with anything other than the heart of a child? A faithful, believing child? 
Yes, you should come in reverence. Yes, you should come and honor him. But do you get that? Do you get that you can talk to God directly? That you can tell him how you're struggling? You can tell him what you're trying to hold on to? You can tell him where you're falling short? You see, God can understand where you're coming from because you're his child. And so Abram speaks quite bluntly to God, pointing at Eleazar saying, this guy's my heir. Where's the son? Where's the promise? Where's the fulfillment? Where's the blessing? And so Abram's struggle with the promise to me helps me to know that when I struggle to believe the word of God, when I am unsure and feeling weak and frail, I can go to God and he's ready. He's ready to hear my complaint, my cry, my questions. What a God we have. A God who's promise isn't going to be threatened because his children can't see it all clearly. He gets us and he gets Abram. And so he's willing to, to give Abram something, something in the meantime. Notice that God doesn't answer Abram's request by granting the promise immediately. God's not a genie. You don't just, you ain't never had a friend like me. I mean, that, that's, that's not how this goes. There's less response to that than I anticipated. Say, <laughs> lovey. So sometimes we think, I pled with God in prayer. I begged him, I asked him, and he didn't answer. In other words, would you rather have it in this moment that God brings full and final fulfillment to that promise? I'm certainly glad he didn't because that promise entails your salvation and mine. It was a promise to be fulfilled in God's redemptive timeline. And so this isn't a promise answered kind of a promise. Instead, God gives Abram a sign. And that's point two, a sign of assurance. A sign of assurance, verses four and five. A struggle with a promise, verses one through three, leads to a sign of assurance Looking at verse four, then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him saying, this man, speaking of Eleazar of Damascus, the servant born in his house, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. That's an awesome promise. You know, Abram is already in his own ingenuity thinking of ways God might fulfill this in natural, not supernatural ways. Abram knows that, that he's not bearing children at his age. He's quite certain of that. And so he's already figured out, this is before the Ishmael story, we'll get in a few weeks, and before Sarah herself decides that she needs to get involved in helping God fulfill his promise with her handmaiden and, and all of that drama that will We'll save for, for that episode of the soap opera. But what, telenovia, what is happening before that, though, is, is we already see Abram starting to think, well, it'll probably be, you know, this human explanation, this obvious fulfillment. It's, it's funny how often we underestimate God. 
and his ability to keep his own promises. But God instead answers Abram's complaint with a sign of assurance in verse 5 by telling Abram in verse 4 that this will actually be your physical son. He adds a component to the promise that clarifies what God intended when he said he'll have descendants. These won't be proxy descendants. These are your actual genetic uh, relatives. You're going to have an actual son. Little does he know this will be not only his son, but Sarah's son as well. This will be a child from two who are old enough to be great grandparents. But before he can get to that side of it, he wants to give him something in the meantime, verse five. And I'd love to know what verse five means. And he took him outside. How, when you're receiving a vision from God in your Arabian tent, do you get taken outside? I just love that moment. I want to know what that meant. And I don't have an answer for you. No commentator has an answer for you. Don't come up afterwards and ask me. There is no answer. Just my imagination going, did he float out there? Did God like open the tent, sky roof, moon roof? How did that work? Was this just part of the vision? Like, you know, you're in a vision. We're outside now. Boom. You know, I, I don't know. But I love it that God took him outside. God took him outside. And he tells him to look towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. (laughs) And he says to them, so shall your descendants be. So shall your descendants be. If you grew up in the city and not in the country, if you grew up here and not out there, uh, you may have still never seen the stars. But if you've been out there in the wild, rugged wilderness, if you've been up to see the northern lights, if you've looked at the vastness of the Milky Way without light pollution, uh, you know what a sight Abraham saw. For us, it's something kind of special, right? If we get to see the stars. For Abram, I think it reminded him of his former life. How many times had he looked up at the moon and worshiped her? How many times had he thought about the movement of the uh, astronomical bodies and offered sacrifices to them? He had probably gotten into a habit of not looking up at the stars too much. But God tells him or takes him outside And says, look up at these stars. At all of them. And if you can, count them. You can't. That's how great the fulfillment of this promise will be. That's your descendants. Again, this isn't an individualized promise for Abram. He realizes it's something bigger than that. And if he didn't fully grasp that then, which I think he already did, he gets it even more now. I mean, this isn't going to be this many babies will live in your tent. You'll never sleep again. There'll be millions and millions of babies. The descendants thing is the blessing to the earth. It's the fulfillment of righteousness on the earth. It's that there isn't one family following Yahweh and one shadowy priest named Melchizedek, but this is people all over the face of the earth worshiping the one true God. 
That's what he has in mind here, and it's stunning. And what happens in this moment is God gives Abram a sign, a physical, tangible, visible sign of his promise. And it is not unlike God to do that for his children. One of the early signs that God gave to show his promise was a bow in the sky. Uh, A bow was was a weapon in the ancient world. And one strung this way made you duck. But one strung that way was pointed at heaven instead of at earth. And when God made his promise to Noah, he put a bow in the sky so that every time Noah and his descendants would see it, they would know God will never judge the earth by water again. And now here's another sign. Stars. So that every time Abram and his descendants, and if you're thinking in New Testament terms, and I hope you are, this is a sign for you as well. Stars are a reminder every time you see them, all three of them in our fair city. And you imagine what's behind them. I got that app on my phone that you can look at stars. Have you seen that app? I love that app on the phone. And it shows you where Sagittarius is and where Jupiter is. Jupiter is always up there sneaking around doing stuff. And I like to, I like to put it up and, and we play with it with the kids. And we, oh, and Saturn's above your head, duck. You know, it's got that ability to look at the skies. And, and when we are out in the wild yonder, it's fun to look and see all the stars. But do you realize those are a sign of God's promise to fulfill his word to Abram and, and his word really to the whole world that he will bring righteousness and will be a blessing to all of the world through this promised son. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, that's, that's very Old Testament. I don't need that. I don't need a physical sign. I don't need tangible reminders. I just live by faith because that's, that's how I roll. And I'm impressed with you. But I wonder if you were at church two weeks ago. And I wonder if you tasted that bread and that wine. Because if you did, you were reminded that God still uses physical signs to impress on his children something they ought never to forget. And so though it's a a wee and dusty little cracker, when you put it in your mouth, you remember that you're sustained by food, right? That you're sustained by bread, but that your soul is sustained and your soul is fed by Christ himself. And that God cared enough about this broken world and enough about rebellious sinners that he knew that he would send his son corporally, physically, bodily into this world to be torn apart on our behalf. So that when you taste that bread, you remember that your soul can only be fed by the body of Christ broken for you. And when you taste that infinitesimally small and saccharine sip of Welch's, which, you know, was wine for 2,000 years until 
some weird amendment came to America. But <laughs> when you taste that wine, we'll just call it that since that's what the Bible calls it. And that drop of the fruit of the vine hits your tongue. You remember, you remember in this physical sign, a drink in your mouth of the preciousness and cost of the blood of Christ. God is still willing to give signs, physical, tangible reminders of promises that are so important. He will do everything necessary to give you that reminder, that assurance. As often as you take this, do this in remembrance of me, Jesus would say to the disciples. And so here we are over and over again on the Lord's day, taking the supper tasting the bread, drinking the wine, and remembering his body and blood broken and spilled for us. It's a reminder that he'll keep his promise and that the work he started, he'll fulfill and finish. And a time is coming when we will not take communion anymore, but we will be in communion with Christ himself forever. Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. God gives assurance to his servants. In this one, it's stars. For us, it's bread and wine. And then we come to verse six. Third and finally, and if it's a struggle with a promise and then a sign of assurance, it's the significance of faith. Verse six, the significance of faith. And again, one of the most important verses in the whole Bible here. It says, then he believed in the Lord and Yahweh and he, that's God, reckoned it to him, that's Abram, as righteousness. This isn't the first time righteousness is used in the Bible. Uh, Noah is called a righteous man. And the New Testament tells us Noah was righteous because Noah was a man who lived by faith. This is the first time that word reckoned occurs in the Bible. Reckoned in verse 6. Or credited, your Bible might say. And this is such an important verse that it's expanded to an entire entire chapter, Romans chapter 4. It's such an important verse that it's at the very heart of Paul's defense of the gospel to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. And it's such an important verse that James, as he's trying to present this balance between the relationship between faith and works and, and try to help his, his uh, audience understand that, that dynamic relationship, that real faith produces real works, that, that faith precedes works, but faith never precludes works. That in James chapter 2, he cites Genesis 15.6. It's such an important verse that Romans, the gospel according to God, in chapter 4, uses that word reckoned or imputed or credited over and over again. I think seven times in that chapter, it uses that word credited. I'd like you to notice in verse 6 of chapter 15 that this isn't a continuation of their conversation. God didn't say to Abram what you read in verse 6. And it wasn't Abram that said to God what you read in chapter 15 of Genesis verse 6. 
Instead, the narrator, inspired by God, likely Moses, the author of the Torah, is the one who stops this account and sees its significance in the flow of the story of Genesis, the story of beginnings, the beginning of this world, the beginning of the fall of man, the beginning of God's unfolding his redemptive plan. And he stops the story inspired by the Holy Spirit and says this comment. And then he believed in the Lord, and it reckoned to him as righteousness. You see, you can't have something credited to you that you already have. You can't have something imputed to you that you have intrinsically. You can't be reckoned a certain way unless you are not that way. In other words, you cannot be outwardly assessed righteous if you are already righteous. See, Abram was the one believing, and God was the one fulfilling. Abram was the one grasping onto the promise, though faltering, though falling short, though wobbling at times, sometimes in big ways, like in Egypt, chapter 14, and other times in demonstrable strong ways, like in his war against the kings. Abram, with his imperfect faith, all he's doing is believing. And the reason he's believing is because God revealed himself to Abram. It wasn't that Abram kind of, hmm, let me see, I think that you know, I'm from, from worshiping the moon God and, you know, just checking out the stars. I think that there's a God. And, and that, No, no, God spoke to Abram and Abram believed. Faith comes from God. It responds to the word of God. And in that faith, God responds and gives righteousness. That's the transaction that's being highlighted in Genesis 15. Highlighted in a book about the beginning of faith because from the very first family, you see one young man who is killed by his brother who's commended for his faith. And then you see one guy with a tiny family in an earth full of wickedness, Noah, and his tiny family who's commended for his faith as he works and builds a boat. And then you run into Enoch, a a mysterious figure who walks with God and his faith is commended because he is one who has believed God, walked with God, and therefore been declared righteous. So it's Abel, and it's Enoch, and it's Noah, and now it's Abraham. And we have this family of faith being declared righteous, being credited righteous, being told that their faith has made them have a right standing with God. And this is the heart of the gospel, the message that defines Christianity. If you are a Christian tonight, it is because you believe that the, that those who have faith are made right with God on the basis of their faith. That by faith they are declared righteous. If you are not a Christian tonight, it is because you lack faith, because you fail to believe the promise of God that God does not see you as righteous. Instead, He sees you as you actually are. And you are the same way all of us were when we entered this world, dead in our sins and transgressions, alienated from God and from one another. And the only thing that can change your status before God is for you to believe his promise. And his promise is a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gets it if it's a struggle to believe. He gets it 
if you need some help with your assurance. He gets it if you'd like to have a conversation with him about the nature and fulfillment of his promise. He can handle what you bring. And when you bring faith, no matter how small it is, and get this, no matter how wobbly it is, True faith is rewarded by righteousness every single time. And that brings me to a message that I have just for you, GOC, tonight. Everybody's asked me the same question. And they meet me at Profeta, my office. And they say, so how you like GOC? And I say, it's fun. And they say, so what have you observed? It's like a reverse meetup. What's wrong with us? Like I'm, like I'm keeping a list or something. And I never have an answer. I think you guys are great and I like you. But I do think there's something wrong with you. And it's something wrong with every single Christian. Every single Christian who struggles with a heart like ours a heart that doesn't understand grace, a heart that knows that legalism is such an easier system. It's just a godless one. I'm concerned that too many of you think that the way to be assured of your salvation is to look at your faith under a microscope every day of your life to analyze it, to navel-gaze it, to dissect it, to think about the motive underneath the motive underneath the motive. And I think somebody told you that there's a verse in the New Testament that says that you should examine your faith. But that's not what the verse says. It says examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. The faith, you know what that means? That's not some subjective, personal expression of faith. The faith is the faith once and for all entrusted to the saints. And yes, there'll be signs if you're a true Christian. There'll be fruit in your life. There'll be a love for other believers. There's a whole book of the New Testament about this called 1 John. But before you go off and read 1 John, do you understand what it means to be in the faith? It means that you're not examining your faith. It's that you need to ask, who is the object of my faith? You see, what GOC struggles with is what every single believer who doesn't fathom the grace of God struggles with. We all think we can earn it. We we came here by faith, but we think we carry on by works. We think that, you know, I came here a sinner, poor, haggard, rebellious, God saved me, and now it's my job to just microanalyze myself and and figure out how to be right with God. But that's not what your faith is about. Your faith has an object in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not your righteousness that you're looking for. It's His. That's the glorious gospel of Genesis 15.6. That's why it's worth a chapter of Romans. You see, Paul's arguing with people who think like you do. In Romans chapter 4, he's arguing with people who are so fastidiously concerned about law keeping that they misunderstand that no one is saved by the law. 
but you're saved by the grace of God. That you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and he's the one you need to look to. Not inside your deep self somewhere underneath a layer of another layer of another motive of another motive to see if you've been good enough to earn God's favor. You are a child of God if you believe him by faith. And if you wonder about that, don't look to you 10,000 times. Look to Christ. And see how glorious he is. And see how good he is. You see, unbelief doesn't wrestle with God's promises. Unbelief, I don't know if you've noticed it on the campus, does not give a rip. It spits in the face of God repeatedly. It turns its back on on God. It laughs at God's promises. That's what unbelief looks like, remember? Remember? But belief, it looks like this. Abram asking God, how long until you fulfill your promise? When will I see it? And God answering him with assurance and a sign. Something palpable and visible. A word in due season. You can look at Romans 4, and you can hear the words. What should we say then? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found. For Abraham was justified. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. The chapter goes on and on, talking about not works, not law, not circumcision. But instead, it says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. And the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. Verse 16, for this reason it is by faith in order that may be in accordance with grace. That the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. That means you get righteousness the same way Abraham gets righteousness. It's by faith. All you do is believe. And I don't care if you've got a grain of faith or a gram of faith or a gargantuan amount of faith. And you know what? God doesn't measure it that way anyway. And so look at your faith and look at your faith and look at your faith and whatever you see will be imperfect. It will be cracked. It will be wobbly. It will ebb and flow. But instead, look at the object of your faith, the one who is the righteousness of God, the one who took our sin on him and died in the cross in our place so that he would give to us the righteousness of God. He would impute it to us. He would impart it to us. He would reckon it to our account. So we look to To him and not to us. And if you find Christ glorious and beautiful, if you've got uh, the faith the size of a mustard seed to find Christ lovely, then find in him joy and assurance and rest and peace. To know you're a child of God, that you belong to him. That he can handle your doubts and he can handle your wavering. That's why Paul spoke so strongly to the, to the Galatians about Abraham in chapter 3, verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify all the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel before unto Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer, not the worker of the law, not the perfect example of faith, not the one who, who produced enough works to show that he was worthy of God's grace. But Abraham, the believer. What's your name? If you have faith, you're Nathan, the believer. And Ethan, the believer. And Jira, the believer. That's how much faith matters. When it's object is Jesus Christ. And you say, but what about works? James 2, 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? We're not to that story yet. Spoiler alert. You see that faith was working with his works. As a result of the works, faith was perfected. He's just trying to show that there's a relationship between works and faith. But listen to verse 23. Scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Do you see that? that oh, it just makes us feel nervous, doesn't it? I mean, it's Reformation Day. You can't say it's day after Reformation Day. You can't say something like that, James. All he's saying is this. Abraham was a friend of God, not because of anything he did, but because of what he believed. And because he believed, he worked. Because Rahab enacted her faith, it was shown that her faith was genuine. James balances it out. What do you do with all that? Well, in it, we see the gospel in full form. In it, we see that we deserve God's wrath and God's judgment, that no self-reformation or self-examination or law-keeping can rescue us because Galatians 2.16, by the works of the law, no one can be justified. We're all found condemned, utterly sinful, But we need a righteousness that comes from God. Romans 3.21. The righteousness that comes from Jesus. The one who is a perfect atonement for our sin. Who redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus stands as our representative substitute. And so our frail faith looks at him and sees all that we need. The atonement for sin, the righteousness before God, all of it by faith. Just as righteousness was credited to Abraham through his faith in God's promise, so also in the same way God credits righteousness to us, to those who believe in him. The one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Romans 4, 4, 24 and 25. The Christian gospel was proclaimed by the apostles 
And Paul said it in Acts 13, 38, 39. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So friend, listen one more time to the gospel. In every proclamation of the gospel, this should be the message that you hear through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the promised fulfillment of God's blessing to this world. Through his death and his resurrection, there is righteousness and forgiveness of sin and the inheritance of God's kingdom for any sinner who will believe. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you'll hang on to that promise like Abraham did. Though you only see it in sign, and though only you see it in part, he will fulfill all his good promises.